You're listening to the Legendarium Blue Team. Welcome. You have chosen wisely. Please go to patreon.com slash legendarium to support the show. I'm not sure I'd call him evil. I would call him a son of a buck. Uh, <laughs> I would I would certainly not that's, call him. That's because you hail from the Jurassic. That is because I hail from the Jurassic period. Thank you yeah, for reminding me how old I am. Welcome to the Legendarium. My name is Todd, and we are here with the Blue Group, Blue Team, ish. Uh, kind of an kind of an Indigo team. I yeah. think that's what we call we call it Indigo when we have someone visiting, and we have somebody visiting. Kyle, here welcome. I am. Hey, yeah. thank you. We got Kyle. We got Ken. We got Todd. We is are this, mostly the Blue Team. Is this really visiting though? I mean, because we're all we're all one team. Well, we're all Legendarium. Yeah. It's kind of like offense and defense, right? Right. right. And we all know that this is the one that scores, and the other team is the one that tries to keep the ball in the air. Exactly. And so I'm just, you know, here for keeping the ball in the air, mostly. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, it's, it's finally time I'm going to score. Oh, so maybe, maybe something well, like that. Something uh, like that. Well, Somebody's got a rebound. Uh, we, we know that's not really possible at this point. So. <laughs> well, we're glad to have you, Kyle. And, uh, and, and, and hopefully you will be glad when this is all over. In a positive way, not in a, oh, I'm glad this is <laughs> glad over, but over. glad I was able to be no, here. No, I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Plus, the, you know, the topic is near and dear. So oh, it's, my it's a book. We, we made sure to get one that was really in his wheelhouse that was going to be sure to grab him. And yep. my goodness, mm. talk about grab. Um, so and many. rend <laughs> and tear. <laughs> yes. Um, intri- well, we'll get into that a little bit later. Before we dive too deep into everything else, just want to make sure that we remind everybody, um, legendary.com. That's where you can find us. Uh, but hey, you can also find us on YouTube. Uh, start checking out some of the videos. Start checking out our video stream. We're glad all of you listen to us on podcast. But you know, if you want to see us mm-hmm. and what we really look like, uh, we're not <laughs> anything to look at. I mean, but you know, you for can. But... We'd love to see you join us on the YouTube channel. Uh, Patreon.com. Engage with us mm-hmm. out there. Um, boy, Discord. We've got an, our, our active Discord channel. Everybody probably makes fun of me because I'm not as active as I should be. When I do get active on Discord, it's like at 11 o'clock in the, at night, and I do like 12 chats, and then I'm done for it's about like a sighting month. Or something like that. I, I'm definitely yeah. more of a lurker than anything on Discord. It's one of those like I'll pop in every once in a while, but. I'm keeping up on it, you know. I, I'm definitely Instagram lurking style on Discord. I so, get a yeah. kick out of totally I, I get a kick out of the the posts that come through mm-hmm. and the immediate replies that everybody else gives. I'm like, yeah, I got nothing to add to this. I'm yeah, just going like, to enjoy oh. it for tonight. <laughs> cool, <laughs> kind of fun stuff. Yep. Well, exactly. tonight we are going to be talking about Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. a yes. quintessential. 21st century, 20th century, late 20th century late science 20th, fiction, yeah. late mm-hmm. 20th century. Uh, this is one that I, I have to admit I had never read. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd avoided, I had not really avoided Michael Crichton, but I hadn't, I, you know, I had so much else to read that Michael Crichton never came up on my, on my radar really. Right. And, uh, so this is your first Michael Crichton. This is my first Michael Crichton. Okay. It's actually your second. Is it? Yeah. We did Sphere and uh, oh, Heroes of the right. Sphere was Michael Crichton, right. wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, so, and that one was, that one, I have to admit, uh, like this one, I saw the movie first. Mm-hmm. And Sphere was closer to the book than Jurassic Park, I think, by the time we were done. But that's, yep. a, that's yeah. a spoiler, maybe. Maybe we should say spoilers. I mean, if anybody's Jurassic coming here. Jurassic Park. 
The book's 30 years yeah, old. It's 30 years old. It's kind of one of those, like, we're, we're going to spoil this for you if you continue to listen. So <laughs> we spoil everything. Either, either get on or get out, this basically. Is, we, we kind of are like everybody hates Chris for the yeah, science fiction the, community. You know? The book is 30 years old. The movie is 28 years old. If you haven't seen it by now, you deserve to have it spoiled. I mean, dinosaurs. Wow. I'm just saying. Wow. I, I okay. call it like I see it. Okay. There you go. You know. Well, speaking of calling it like he sees it. Oh yeah. Do you have a, a a recap for us? I I do have a recap, and I have to admit it's a recap that I struggled with a little because everyone knows Jurassic Park. So I mean, what is there to say about it? But as Ian Malcolm would point out, recaps uh, find a way. Mm-hmm. So really, that's how you're going to start this one? I did. Wow. Okay. Did okay. Everybody, sit back and relax. Ken's on a roll. <laughs> That's right. Jurassic Park is the story of a disillusioned medical student who leaves med school to put his medical and scientific interest to good use as a fiction novelist. Oh, wait, that's that's real life. <laughs> <laughs> In the... <laughs> I got him. Got him. Oh, oh my goodness. That was... Got him. I'm trying to think. Is that woo? Then... <laughs> <laughs> Well done. In this case, the novel centers around an eccentric billionaire who decides to use revolutionary, revolutionary game-changing advancements in cloning and genetics to create a theme park that harkens back to a simpler age, specifically the Jurassic Age. Kind of like Walt Disney, only with dinosaurs. Real dinosaurs. Like huge, pants-pissingly scary dinosaurs. And in between discussions about the merits of scientific ethics and good old-fashioned American capitalism, crazy billionaire brings cool uh, brings to town cool archaeologist Sam Neill, Laura Dern is cute botanist colleague, and quirky mathematician by the name of Jeff Goldblum. Uh, this, something like that. I might have seen the movie. You <laughs> might have seen the movie. <laughs> he wants them to check out the park and sign off that it's great for adults, fun for kids, including his granddaughter, who is amazingly even more annoying in the book. All while appeasing the lawyers, game managers, and scientists, it's a solid plan until Newman shuts down the power systems, including the security <laughs> fencing. We're wait, a minute, a wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this the book or the movie you're doing a recap yeah, of? A bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I've missed your recaps. Uh, just, just, to see, just to see Todd's face. I love it. So. All right. Anyway, so Newman shuts down the power systems, including the security fencing. Crichton knew it 40 years ago. This is why you always treat your tech guys right, people. So you all know how what happens next. Dinosaurs get out. People make stupid choices and wind up dead, including Newman himself. Oh, the humanity. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes, folks. Somehow the dinosaurs are even more scary on the page than they are on the screen. Terrorizing, stalking, rending, and clawing. You know the rest. Most of the crew staves off extinction. Power and order are restored. Dinosaurs escape. No recap questions. Okay, one, one recap question. Who's your favorite character and why is it Muldoon? that's it jurassic park go team go team that was really well done i was not completely confused by the entire process <laughs> but really well done i'm 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 almost speechless uh it's, it's really the it's the only thing you can say about a book that's 30 years old is talk a little bit about the person who wrote it i suppose because <laughs> i still think that the story of michael Crichton is fascinating how he went to medical school he was going to be a doctor but he has always wanted to write novels and one day he just decides you know what medical school is not for me i'm going to put this sciencey mm -hmm. mathematical knowledge to good use and he's just going to write books and he does that so well and yeah. until and you know really does do it well um it, well enough that it that it uh, well we'll we'll ask the question how well is it holding up and uh, after 30 years we'll get a glimpse but 
I imagine we'll have a little bit more conversation about that as we go. Yeah. Before we before we dive into everything, I want to make sure we ask this question right at the outset. I, this is your second time through this book, yes, Kyle? No, this is like my fourth time through it. Fourth time, okay. Yeah. So we are the newbies on this one. No, yeah. wait a minute. Ken, had you read the book before? Never read the book before. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you and I come into this thing as kind of like we did with Mistborn, completely... I I knew absolutely nothing of Mistborn when I went. I, I at least okay. had seen the movie a gazillion times yeah. going into this book, so I kind of knew what to expect. And I, I want to point out, aside from the ending and a lot of stuff in the middle of of the storyline i think i i mean stuff because i mean it's how many pages long but it, it it doesn't have to fit a two and a half hour movie you know no or or whatever a lot of the stuff that is on the film is in the book except i mean there are a couple of liberties like uh the girl is younger than the boy and, yeah and, the, and the flipping that ages yeah and, and uh grant and ellie are not uh, love interests they're just colleagues you know mm-hmm. stuff like that and then there are a couple of other things you know people dying and that but overall i thought that a lot of what was on the screen is in the book and i love that that this this is one of the this is one of the times when and and perhaps it's because the book was so widely read before it even hit the before it even hit the movie screen uh that it was that that they tried to make sure that they kept as much as they possibly could similar yeah um but there were there were still lots and lots and lots of liberties taken so that by the time i was reading the book i had to admit i was feeling like i was reading something that i had not yeah i mean experience with i mean you really look at it and almost the entire third act is completely different yeah although to to your point similar but the the events don't don't unfold in the same way there's the same effect and there's the same outcome but the the action sequences but who's doing the action yeah yeah. who's doing the action but also just the way things go about or who like you've got a few characters that are in there that are are either kind of put together for the movie or or you know broken apart like Muldoon is different in the movie than he is in the book yes you know Gennaro is completely different in the movie than he is in the book um Hammond himself is very different oh yeah quite Hammond in the book is much more sinister and corporate and evil than you know nice richard attenborough uh, right i'm not sure i'd call him evil i would call him a son of a buck uh <laughs> i would i would certainly not that's, call him that's because you hail from the jurassic period. that is because i hail from the jurassic period thank you yeah, for reminding I think me how fair. old i, I wouldn't am. call him evil necessarily but but certainly his motivations were less less uh benign and much more self-serving in the in the book than they were in in I mean in both in both he's always talking about this idea I want to do this for the kids it's for the mm-hmm. kids right it's always for the kids it's always for the kids because kids love dinosaurs sure and he loves money mm-hmm. um and the, the the in the one it comes across as this is a gift and in the other it comes across as uh uh-uh, uh uh-uh, I'm taking every one of those benjamins from you baby well, and I'm going to spend them wherever I want well and he has a god <laughs> complex right doesn't everybody so well yeah but like Hammond, Hammond, even more so, right? So he's he's all about. I mean, I think there, he mentions when he's thinking about uh, like when he's worried about the incidents in the park that they, the first starts to shut down or whatever. And he he starts to talk about how he's worried that he's not going to see this come to oh yeah yeah fulfillment yeah. Right, right and and it's part of it because you know it's his life's work or whatever. But it's really about him being able to say we've done something nobody else has ever done and. Yes, they're going to make a. Ma- I mean, how many times does he say they're going to make just piles and piles of money? 
but it's really about again him having ultimate control he's created everything he's thought of everything they control everything and it's all because he allows it or wills it right <laughs> right because he's the brains behind it well and not just not just him but i i think uh Wu mm-hmm. has kind of a god complex with the whole you know look what we can create with science and malcolm clearly does with chaos theory he's all of this is happening exactly as I have foretold. You know, he doesn't say it exactly that way, but I mean, every time he, every time he turns around and something bad happens, he goes, I told you, mm-hmm. you know, I, I knew this was going to happen. And, and it, you clearly see what, who's, um, whose side Michael Crichton takes yes. in this book. Yes. Because everything that Ian Malcolm says is, is a cautionary tale or a lesson learned. Yeah. Yeah, it feels very much one of the one of the one of the pieces that I found. And uh, actually, let me back up just a second. I want to ask this question um, because it's a question that we always ask in the science fiction books at some point in time. So I'm going to ask it right now um, on a on a scale of one to you know uh, d- gigantic dinosaurs running around the Earth. <laughs> how well does this story's science successfully drive the fiction? Is this one where we say, oh, the science is a backdrop, but the people are driving the fiction? Or is this one where the science really drives the fiction, in your opinion? I feel like the science drives quite a bit in this one. I do, too. Um, I mean, and, and Crichton is very uh, explicit as he's laying out chaos theory, as he's laying out genetics and, you know, bioengineering and all of this stuff. Um, and he, he takes his time to walk through like and fill the holes like the the whole idea of uh you know plugging the holes in the DNA I would say he's taking the science and he's plugging the fiction holes yeah you know what I mean yeah yeah one of the one of the things and and uh, you know I'm glad that both of you agree with me that the science does a good job of driving the fiction because then I don't have to humiliate you uh, on, <laughs> on video. But I, but I will say this, the, for me, at least, um, Michael Crichton has done a one, uh, does a wonderful job in this of making sure that neither overshadows the other. Mm-hmm. The characters yeah. are still compelling care. At least for me, we're still mm-hmm. compelling characters. They were, a li- they're a little two dimensional because he's using them to illustrate different perspectives on what's going on and this isn't a story about relationships necessarily so Mm-mm. a little bit of that two-dimensional nature of some of these characters i absolutely forgive i'm willing to run with it because what i got was a science driven uh a, a science a science driven disaster movie mm-hmm. uh yeah. you know a godzilla against godzilla against against godzilla almost you know as we're looking at all of these kinds of things and what happens to the people that are stuck in the middle it it feels almost like it could have been titled jurassic park what happens when people get in the way um <laughs> almost you know and, and obviously it wasn't but you know a few people a few people get in the way like a lot of like people a lot of people get in the way mm-hmm. well and they all make questionable decisions that almost you think might be human nature uh, in terms of things like big scary teeth run that way no don't <laughs> don't run that way stay right where you are mm-hmm. stop just be you know and and uh inevitably i mean isn't panic the driver of a lot of bad decisions so. um i that should be a t-shirt uh panic and tequila 
drivers yeah, of bad yeah. decisions. There you go. Um, and, you know, take your choice. I think the one might have helped more than the other in this case. Uh, probably <laughs> both. Well, like, good, good helpings of both. Uh, either that or uh, what was it? Uh, ice cream? The yeah. the ginger ice cream? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe. That doesn't sound good to me. But. Uh, it, you know, it really doesn't. No. I've I've had ginger on lots of things. Most of them have been fish related with my sushi. Okay, uh, but never, ever, 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 ever in ice cream. No, yeah, that sound sounds good. like a terrible so idea. If any of you out there have ginger in your ice cream and you think it's the most wonderful thing, let us know. Yeah, but validate don't bring it. it to a party. <laughs> but, uh, but at least validate you, it. You are a minority. So let me ask this question: Do you buy the idea that every scientist is a Machiavellian huckster? waiting for his opportunity to strike it big on the stupidity of the rest of the planet? No. I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't buy that, but only because you said all, or because you said every. So I have to throw I would, in the qualifier. I would put my money on the vast majority of them. I think that's one of the drivers that leads you into science, specifically science that you could find some great a defining characteristic of the universe type thing. This is going to change the world. My discovery is going to, you know, last forever or whatever. I think there's a, a little bit of, of that in every scientist, but I was going to say, isn't that is there a little bit of that in everybody, but I don't really know that there is in just random rank and file people. So I don't know. I, Kyle, what do you think? I don't know. I mean, I, I actually probably agree with Ken more. I'm like, I, I like to think like, oh, everybody wants to capitalize on their moment or whatever, but like, eh, maybe not. There's some people that are just genuinely in for the curiosity and, and the knowledge. And yeah. stuff. You know, the interesting thing for me was as, as we were laying out these two different kinds and, and for those who don't know, I have a, I have a bit of a science background. I'm a, I'm a little bit of a science geek, um, not just a science fiction geek, but a little bit of a science geek. Uh, two of my uncles were chemical engineering. One, one was a chemical engineering professor. One was a chemistry professor. So I got I, I'm, for fun. Mm-hmm. One year we pulled Stretch Armstrong apart. Okay. And when he <laughs> came apart, we decided to find out what the goo inside was made of by experimenting with it on my grandmother's stove. There are some <laughs> there are some stains in that building that never went away. But that's a different story. Uh, so so when I when I was reading that piece, I was saying to myself, okay. As, as he goes through and he talks about woo trying to, you know, figure out, no, I don't want to go into research and Hammond coming mm-hmm. along and saying, nobody wants to do research anymore. What you really want to do is you want to get into applied stuff. You want to do all mm-hmm. of these things on the applied side. And you want to make dinosaurs. <laughs> why don't you come with me and make dinosaurs? And and I have to I have to sit back and say, you know. I'm not so sure I'm disagreeing with it, but I'm not as convinced of it as uh, Michael Crichton seems to be, at least in this book. Right. Mm-hmm. It feels more, it, it feels very much more, a, it's, it's, it's a much more nihilistic view of what drives people into science. And he does make the, he does make the statement at one point, um, nobody, nobody goes into this because of their desire to discover truth. They go into it. Because they want to make money. Right. And I think I think that is a Michael Crichton view of science driving the story. I don't think that necessarily it's a philosophical question that he's trying to get people to talk about, even though we're doing it right here. I think that was just him. <laughs> yeah. I would I would also say it's probably just uh cultural commentary as well. I think because it. it's also like, hey, 
if you want to make any money when you're when you're an adult and have to have a job, you need to be into a STEM program. You know what I mean? Yes. You which absolutely I've told to, my kids forever. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's a huge thing, right? And so it, it could be a commentary on that as well, where it's like you that's where money is, is is in applied sciences. Mm-hmm. And so anybody that goes into applied sciences went in it because either either they were told to to make money or I mean, to, to Todd's point, there are people that I think genuinely are interested in it, but I think the culture of the science community, there's so many people in there because if I'm in a STEM program, I'll make I money, will make money. That that's, that's what you get caught up in. Right? Yeah. And there is, and, and certainly it, it, it probably bears mentioning that it depends on which field of the sciences that you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. Obviously, if you're going into genetics in the 1980s, yeah, there was every belief that that was where the next frontier of discovery mm-hmm. was going to be. Of course, this year, that that same area is in carbon footprints. Mm-hmm. And so how can you store carbon? How can you pull carbon out of the atmosphere and do something different with it? I'm sure we have lots of chemical engineering and chemistry professors who are trying to figure out that exact thing and probably oh, sure. make a name for themselves. Uh, and Kyle, I love the fact that what you say is that it's it, perhaps it's a comment on our society. It's a level two, it's a level two issue. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who aren't familiar with level one, two, and three, trust me, level one, two, and three is you, you can look it up. Look it, it up on our YouTube channel. I, I was going to say you're going to you're going to find plenty of opportunities to find <laughs> one, two, and three stuff if you go back through our our catalog. And and this book is really probably one of the most heavy level two books Mm -hmm. that i think we've ever read i think so probably yeah um did you have a favorite character you said you said why isn't it and why is it muldoon i like muldoon Uh, we knew you were gonna like muldoon of course oh i like muldoon in the movie too i mean when he was played by the aussie you know and the Mm -hmm. clever girl and all that and which he never got to say and i'm glad he still he survived i'm glad that was one of the changes in the books that uh, that Muldoon gets to survive. We I want to bring that up later. Is the changes some of the changes for the yeah, books? Yeah, yeah, we definitely will. Yeah. But yeah, I really like Muldoon, and I, he seemed like the only one who was kind of level headed and practical about what was actually going on immediately in yeah. their circumstance. You know, I'm like, uh, yeah, that's a good thing to know or a good thing to be aware of. You know, so Kyle, what about you? Oh, it's tough. I really like Malcolm's character. He's super obnoxious as a human being, but I really like his character. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh yeah. His wait a minute, you're saying Jeff Jeff Goldblum is. I mean, I do uh, love Jeff Goldblum. Human being. But no, I'm the book Ian Malcolm. <laughs> yes. Uh, I I really enjoy his character, and and to the earlier point, because I do think that Malcolm is Crichton coming through and yeah, yeah and yeah. giving us his take on stuff. And and I love uh, I love Grant and I Grant is so different in the book than he is from in the movie that and I love both versions of it but I really like Grant's character. It's really fascinating how giving an actor and and having done a lot of theater, uh, you give an actor a script and that actor comes up with an interpretation for a character and then all of a sudden it's totally different than perhaps what the author had intended. Mm-hmm. And yeah. this is one of those moments because. Uh, uh, like you said, the grant in the film is comes across quite differently than the grant mm-hmm. in the book. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, I almost think I, I love Sam Neill. I do too. As an actor, you know, I think he, he seems like a great guy in, in real life, but I think the Alan Grant in the book was a more enjoyable character, much more mm-hmm. sympathetic. Yes. Yeah. In fact, that one of the, one of the, uh, one of the, uh, 
pieces that I identified, one of the quotes I identified, Grant liked kids. Yeah, that it was, was the biggest change right there. It was impossible not to like anyone who was so enthusiastic about dinosaurs. Right. Mm-hmm. And I rem- and and as I'm reading through the, not reading, but listening, as I'm listening to the book and it gets to that spot, it says, Grant liked kids. I'm like, oh, huh? hang on. How, this is not what I remember mm-hmm. at all. And... Sure enough, you know, the in the in the movie, it tells this wonderful story about how the kids soften his heart. But no, he had a soft heart to begin with. Right. He was he was right there with the kids right from the very get go. Well, and one of the things I love about him in the book, too, is that not only does he like kids, but he is just a big kid. Yeah, he yeah. is living his dream. And he I mean, he is the scientist we were talking about before. He is in it for the discovery. He is in it for He's not in it for the money. The only yep. reason he's even in it for the money in the book originally is to fund his research. Yeah, so because he wants, he wants to dig up more bones. He wants to dig up more dinosaurs. And you see it, and Crichton does such a phenomenal job describing it, you see him act with this childlike just awe and, and giddiness when he sees yeah. the dinosaurs for the first time. Even when he's like under attack. So, you know, they, <laughs> right. they go, you know, they, they, they're, they just get done getting chased by the T-Rex down the whole river and they're, they go behind this waterfall and they've been through all these traumatic experiences and all this stuff. And he goes in and he, he goes into the underground bunker thing and he gets attacked by a juvenile velociraptor <laughs> and he freaks out and he shoots it with the dart. And the first thing he does is go pull the dart out so that he doesn't overdose the juvenile velociraptor while he's in the middle of Jurassic Park about to get eaten probably gonna die and the first thing that he thinks of is still to save this dinosaur because he loves these and then he freaking lugs it back to the (laughs) lodge with him right because he loves dinosaurs and contrast and contrast that with Hammond who is don't kill my dinosaurs they're valuable they're valuable they're valuable valuable. do you know how much that dinosaurs worth or whatever yeah yeah instead of it being about oh let's learn let's understand let's discover it is let's take your money mm-hmm. let's make sure i get my roi uh, f- uh, the, the 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 juxtaposition of these two groups showing up at the you know being on the island at the same time being threatened with the same kind of disaster and uh michael Crichton giving us an opportunity to see the two different ways that we can approach these kinds of questions is really artfully done and yeah. I, I don't know about you, but as I'm as I'm thinking about the different characters, each one of those characters has a part to play. It was almost like, I mean, I, I hesitate to say it this way because it makes it sound like I'm cheapening the experience, but I, and I'm I'm trying to be respectful. It's almost like a, a, a board game, almost like Clue. Mm-hmm. Each of these characters is very clearly got a set of mm-hmm. uh, of filters, a set of perspectives to see everything through. And we, as the audience, get the opportunity to see all of these different ones and say, almost as if we get the opportunity to say, you know, I resonate most with this one. I understand this character. And while, you know, those of us here in this small little group might be saying, yeah, no, Hammond's a jerk. Mm -hmm. I am absolutely sure that there are some friends that I have and maybe some of you that are listening right now that are like no I totally get Hammond he's my guy mm-hmm. he and and were it not for Hammond we wouldn't have this and we wouldn't have this we wouldn't have cars we wouldn't have planes absolutely 100% behind we, you yeah but I'm I, I love the fact that in this book we get different perspectives every one of them being presented as necessary for the moment and important to drive the story yeah absolutely well you know Hammond's based off of Walt Disney right like oh yeah. That, yeah. Like I know that was it's, in your recap, but that is obvious. that is a yeah. fact. <laughs> and uh yeah, I mean, 
there there is a certain perspective of you know protecting assets and and investments or whatever but the thing i thought was interesting was you've got these two frames of mind right where you've got hammond who wants to conserve life because of the value that it brings to him from like an intrinsic value and you have grant who wants to conserve or preserve life for life itself yeah because of this wonder that he's seeing in front of him yeah yeah it's it's uh it's certainly entertaining to watch that um, or to, or to listen to it or view it, however it is we want to describe it. Um, and certainly I am referencing it more from the standpoint of the book, not from the movie. So sure. let's, let's be clear about that. Um, so let me ask this question. Were there any moments in this book that made you laugh? Hmm. Because I'm I've, trying to think of them right now, but I keep thinking there were several, but now I have to remember what they were. There was one that. My daughter and I, as I'm driving, I'm driving down the road and I, and I said to my daughter, my daughter's normally in her iPods she, or her AirPods. She has her AirPods in and, you know, she's listening to music all the time. She's 16, so I'm not really all that cool. And I'm okay with that because I know that she'll get 19 and I still will not be all that cool, but she'll want more money. Um, so I'm willing to endure. I'm willing to wait. And uh, as we're driving along this one day, I said, is it okay if I, you know, listen to my book? She's like, yeah, it's fine. I got my AirPods in. I'm not paying attention anyway. And we get to the spot where it's where it's talking about the stegosaurs and and the fact that they're observing all of the things that the stegosaurs are eating. The the land, you know, the the stegosaurs are now living in a time that wasn't made for them. The radiation is different. The oxygen is different. The plants are different. And it said, and the fecal monitor called auto poop examines their (laughs) examines their feces to find out what problems are. I laughed out loud because the phrase auto poop, uh, it wasn't fecal, it was auto poop. And I laughed and I said to my daughter, my daughter's looking at me, she's like, what is so funny? Rewind, rewind. And I said, listen to this. And it comes up and it says, and the fecal monitoring system called auto poop. And she busted a gut. Here we are driving down the road. I'm sure people were wondering what in the world what is, is going, going on. on yet? But we laughed out loud in a, in a, in a book that eventually got to the point where I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, you know, oh, how much more can go wrong? To have some of those laugh out loud moments were really, really fun. Can you think of any that you guys remember? I can't think of one specific one, which is, is kind of sad because I know that there were several times Am where I, I that laughed. sick a human being? No, I think I'm just that <laughs> poor at keeping I, my notes as I go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I would, I laughed at a few things, but not because of the, not because they were necessarily funny. I know there were a few, like I know, you know, uh, Malcolm has a few one-line zingers that come out and stuff yeah. like that. But where I would laugh was more like situational, where it was like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Kind of thing. Like where uh, Arnold doesn't see the warning on the on the screen that they were on auxiliary power the whole time. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you laugh because, of course, this is another, I mean, it's a Malcolm effect. They talk about the right. whole like, you know, compounding and whatever. But, Chaos uh, chain reaction. Yeah, exactly. But you laugh just because of the the situational just ridiculousness of it. Of like, they finally got it back online, and nope, they don't. And you're like, of course they're throwing in another twist. And so those are kind of the situational like <laughs> the funny absurdity. Moments, yeah. yeah. So uh, I have another question, and I don't know if I don't know if some of our listeners may not relate to this, gentlemen. I don't know if you will either. Did you ever watch? Land of the Lost, not the movie. All the time. The dinosaur, uh, Seals and Croft. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Nope. nope. So, so Kyle, this won't make any sense. The Sleestacks and the whole nine yards. Oh, yeah. So, Ken, you remember 
at the very beginning they have the the little song marshall, marshall will and holly on a routine expedition yeah, okay, yeah, I got okay. It, yeah so th- this moment when grant gets the kids in the raft mm-hmm. and they are floating down this raft and there's the dinosaur behind him all i heard in the back of my head was that theme song <laughs> and i'm like this is exactly what Land of the Lost was about. I just cannot yeah. even believe it. If, if, that was another moment. While it's not specific in the book, it's more about me on right. my interpretation. That was another moment I laughed out loud. <laughs> we probably ought to cut that off. <laughs> <laughs> no, just leave it in. Oh, man, we'll that's, leave that's it staying. We'll, we'll fix it in post. Uh, <laughs> oh, you're so, stuck. Yeah, right. Um, all right, well... We've we've kind of talked about the characters. We've talked about the science. What what were the other things that jumped out at you about this book that you just that that would say to you, "This is what I want. I want to recommend to somebody. I want to recommend this book to people because." Can we talk about the menacing parts of this Ooh. book? Because I I remember seeing Jurassic Park uh, back in the in the theaters in '93 and and all of that, and I remember thinking this movie is freaking i mean it's not scary like i'm jumping it out of my skin because i you know i'm a guy and i don't do that but i do it was freaking (laughs) some of those dinosaurs were freaking terrifying and that scream you know the 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 actual tyrannosaurus scream and all i'm just like you know those are draw-dropping moments and in this book there were things that were just even more terrifying in my own mind yeah than mm-hmm. were on any screen i mean the things with the tyrannosaurus and the way that the not just the velociraptors but the uh oh, i can't i can't remember all of the dinosaurs names but the the spitting dinosaurs and the mm-hmm. and and the little ones and all that how they would stalk mm-hmm. the people and that, i like the hooting sound of the dilophosaurus the, yeah thank you just the dilophosaurus like, the little, the little things, yeah, the dillos. and the chittering of the of the compies. The compies. Mm-hmm. The, I, the, that scene of the the scene at the end where they surround Hammond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the scavengers surrounding Hammond. Mm-hmm. I, I I was sitting there and I'm reading that and I'm like, you know, I, I okay, this is a tremendous departure from the way that one from the way the movie unfolded to the yep. way the book. Yep, tremendous departure. But I'm watching that, and I've, I'm kind of rooting for the compies at that moment <laughs> yeah. in time. <laughs> yeah, after all. And the thing is, is like the, the reason it's so great is because Hammond had so many chances throughout the book to make the right choice. And oh, he yeah. kept pushing it or kept blaming someone else or kept cutting a corner or, or denying what was actually happening. And so it really was just like the perfect ending yeah. for that. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it came right on the heels of... Because I, li- I re-listened to that when I was driving in tonight, and it came right on the heels of him finally saying, those damn kids. I shouldn't <laughs> even have brought the kids. Yep. And and when you, you know, the, the, the juxtaposition again between Grant and Hammond, Grant saying, I love kids, and Hammond, these are his own grandkids, his own grandkids. for crying out loud. Yep. And he's saying, I shouldn't even have brought and them. And that he kept professing throughout the whole thing that he was doing it. For the for kids. the kids, and it really right. just that just nails home that no, you weren't. You're doing it for you. And then the compies show up. Mm-hmm. What was what was Newman's actual name in the show? I, Nedry. 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 Thank you. I, I'm like now I can't remember it, but uh, his his death in the book in the movie it's almost played off as oh that's just a darn shame. Too bad. See, this is what happens when you when you mess with nature or whatever. In the book, it's like oh 
Yeah, yeah it was pretty awesome. That's it, gruesome. It's much more descriptive and and graphic. Yeah, I, which and, I loved. Yeah. Uh, loved from a uh, hopefully not from a standpoint that you want to see that kind of thing loved happening. more from a detail perspective okay it, it okay. felt more what from a, thorough I, let's go was, with thorough okay more, more clinical uh, let's go with that yeah. <laughs> yeah okay great yeah yeah for sure no i mean i think just the way that's that Crichton describes certain things so you get the the tyrannosaur as he goes down into the into the water into the lake right? and then he looks like a crocodile and then he keeps describing how that w- looks and how he swims and and the way that you're just you're getting the play by play in a sense that I don't know it's hard because there's just enough left out to leave to your own imagination yeah, yeah. which ramps up to your point Ken how scary it is but he's giving you exactly every detail you need to paint the picture around it and what you're filling in is absolutely the the worst version of right. what it could be, you know. Which isn't that the way? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you have to fill in for the unknown, that that's you know, you fill in with the worst case scenario. The description of the and and I I find myself wondering, uh, and Kyle, when you first when you first saw the movie, had you already read the book? No, I saw the movie when I was six. <laughs> oh, okay. I guess that's like me going to see Jaws that when I was seven. That's a whole different story so, right exactly. there. Yeah, both so, of us probably grew up with tainted yep. childhoods in certain ways. You know. Yeah. So yeah, no, I saw the movie when I was six and loved it. Loved every minute. I, I read the book for the first time, I think, when I was maybe 10 or 12 okay. around there. So the the reason that I was bringing that up was because I wondered, uh, as I was reading through the book, and it talked about the the cry, the high-pitched uh, the rumbling cry and the the roars and all these different kinds mm-hmm. of things. Well, since I'd already seen the movie, all three movies, and had the opportunity to to kind of put a sound in my head already for what or four movies, I guess it is now. Five right? is it five? Yeah, five. is there five movies? Five. Number six coming out sometime. Well, right? yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway, well, five. wow. You know, considering that all of those people actually. Didn't survive. Which I, got, um, I was going to say, I got talked about. I got stuff about that. The but, yeah. uh, the the interesting thing is, I had that sound already in my head, mm-hmm. so I couldn't make it up. Right. I wonder. I, I I and maybe I need to find somebody who read the book first and then saw the movie and say which was more terrifying: what you thought it was going to sound like, or what it finally sounded like. And did they match closely enough that you went, "Oh yeah, they nailed that," because. Uh, in 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 some in in some different uh, literature that I read, they try to describe the the vowel sounds that are made by the cry, mm-hmm. and you know high pitch to low pitch, and you know warbling and all these kinds of things. In this one, he gives just a little bit: the chittering of the compies, the roar of the dinosaurs. You know, he gives these different pieces: mm-hmm. the wheezing uh, of the of the Dilophosaurus, the um, yeah. and the clicking. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the velociraptors before they uh, make the all of the, you know yep. all yeah. of the, so he gives he gives these these pieces that are very very clear very very distinctive and then like but you ambiguous said ambiguous enough yeah yep. mm-hmm. you fill in the rest yep. and make yourself as freaked out as you possibly can be I wonder if people when they you know, got so it good. that they said oh yeah do you know what the secret ingredient to the tyrannosaur roar is when they sound mixed it no. So there are three there are three sounds in the tyrannosaur roar and you know fact check me on this I I might be forgetting there might be another one but from the from the behind the scenes uh, three sounds there is a lion's roar yes a crocodile 
okay. roar or growl or whatever you call it, and a baby elephant. I would believe that because it's the high pitched yeah. piece of that that made it so terrifying to Which me. Which is like knowing that it's a baby elephant almost ma- almost makes it even that much more like. Ugh. I wonder <laughs> if they did that because of the small elephant that they had in his. It could be. I don't know. <laughs> as a, as an Easter egg of right. sorts. Yeah. Uh, kind of an interesting deal. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so on a on a Ken, you want to talk about some differences between the book and the movie, and well, then we'll go into finals. I was going to say uh, the differences in this book make me more interested to read the subsequent books because I've seen all the movies, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I know that this is a spoiler for all the movies, but if you've you've probably seen them, uh, Ian Malcolm drives the Lost World movie, the movie The Lost World, where he he can't do that in the book. Nope. So now I got to read the book and see how that was. He goes to see John Hammond before he goes to the second island. Oh, we can't do that now. Mm-hmm. You know, the later movies, 20 years later, uh, Wu is creating new dinosaurs for this new Jurassic world. Well, that can't happen now. So because he's dead, because, he, you know, all of these characters who play major roles in the movie franchise now can't play any role in the book series. Now I'm like, oh, I'm very interested to continue reading now just to see what happens. Yeah. And the thing that I think you they almost completely skip out on in the movie other than just the quick the quick touch on it because it's pivotal but they don't go into it is the corporate espionage that sets up the whole thing yeah yes right? and so you've got nedry and you've got dotson and that dotson. whole we thing got dotson here and like that is the crux of why this has happened right it's, right without nedry this whole thing doesn't really happen like it, it's a different it, there's still there's still before nedry shut down the park there were still dinosaurs getting loose and still you know reproducing and all that stuff but it doesn't go down the way that it goes down right no no and uh yeah i mean they 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 very quickly graze over that in the movie franchise right so oh there was another change from the from the book well that was basically left out of the movie as irrelevant that was solved in the book and that's what happens to the canister you know, when when Nedry dies in the movie, the canister's just lost to the river and no big deal. And I always went, what about the canister, you know, and stuff. Mm-hmm. And now we find out, well, Muldoon and everybody finds the Jeep and they find the canister and they find the bazooka and yep. or the rocket launcher. And, and yeah. yep. that's tied yeah. off with a nice little bow. Yeah, there's quite a few changes when you when you start running them down. Like we talked about some of the character changes, just the way that the characters are, mm-hmm. you know, Hammond and Grant and even uh, Dr. Sattler and all that. But like Lex and Tim, their ages are their ages flopped, flopped. Yeah. which is interesting. Um, and I wonder if the reason that they gave for that was because uh, people didn't feel. I wonder if they did screen testing and they said, "So would you be okay with a little girl being in this level of danger, mm-hmm. or does it have to be an older girl and a younger boy?" I wonder mm-hmm. if I that know. was a if that was a question mark. Yeah, I don't know what the I don't I know wonder. what the reasoning behind that was, but I have a question: Are you more afraid? <laughs> <laughs> of the velociraptors from the movie or the velociraptors from the book um yes yeah <laughs> the i think we're talking about nine versus nine and a half you yeah. know if we had to if we had to rank them the the difference that i had in the way that these two uh interpretations worked mm-hmm. um is in the movie we get more we get we get the visuals of the jump we get the visuals of of them coming out of you know of, of all kinds of places and and they are terrifying, especially if you see it in a bigger screen. Yeah. The bigger the screen it is, the more terrifying it was. Mm-hmm. When I saw it on TV, I kind of laughed. But <laughs> when I saw it on the big screen, I went, um, and it was, it was terrifying. In the book, we get these 
Close Encounters. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of the one at the end where uh, Ellie uh, releases the little, mm-hmm. uh, the little, the juvenile Velociraptor that was in the yeah. that was last one of the hatchlings in the in the building, and she releases it so they can follow it to wherever the other ones are, and and while she's pulling the radio collar off, an adult comes over and nud- and nudges against her leg, and you know all this kind of stuff, and I'm mm-hmm. like. Those are the yeah. kinds of things that I no, that's <laughs> terrifying oh, wow. to me. Yep. That's where can, when Muldoon says, "Yeah, well, most likely hit it with, hit you with the shock stick. It's going to make you loosen your bowels and all this kind of stuff." And I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm going to loosen my bowels if a velociraptor <laughs> walks up and nudges me. One hundred percent. That was crazy. Absolutely. Yep. And that they are so methodical. Mm-hmm. Um, in the in the book. We get that picture of the velociraptors are teasing Ellie while she you, thinks that she's teasing them. You right. really get the sense of intelligence yes. with the velociraptors oh, yeah. in the book. And, I mean, they display it in the movie to a certain effect, but you really get a, a whole nother level of that in the books. Yeah. And and just the idea of like, they're breeding, they're on the boat, they're headed to the mainland. That they're, was you know, another thing that was that totally stuff. different in the, it completely left out of the movie, mm-hmm. was the velociraptors getting on the boat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that all of this was driven, not so much that they needed to get out of the park, but they needed to get out of the park before the boat hit mainland. Right. Mm-hmm. And that level of... Well, you want you want uh, drama? Just add in a, a ticking a t- clock. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, masterfully done. Uh, but isn't it interesting? We we don't get to touch that on this one, but we you know we'll, we'll come back and we'll get it on the next movie, I guess. Mm-hmm. You just reminded me of one of those funny moments. Uh, I I just thought of one of those funny moments in the same vein that that Kyle was talking about just how the absurdity just keeps piling on itself, and that's when they're going down the river and they're finally safe from the from the tyrannosaur and then we go back to the control room why aren't they on the river that's where they head into yeah. the into the tyrannosaur <laughs> they, they, would, they like, wouldn't be on the river that's, oh you're that's gonna lead right to me exactly. and they wouldn't go to the aviary right yeah because it's too dangerous <laughs> it's too dangerous in the aviary yeah. i want to well, because of course why, it is why uh-huh. is it too dangerous in the aviary well yeah, this was, this was one of those moments where I was like, Bob, the talking skull, he should be here to tell us. Yeah, well, right. don't you understand, Harry? That once, mm. you get the, once you go into the aviary, then you're going to have to deal with pterodons that are going to be dive-bombing you. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, the next scene, there are pterodons. Uh, yeah, no, it was perfect. Um, I want to go back to the sense of fear that you were talking about earlier, Ken. Yeah. And I actually want to go back to the very, very beginning of the book. Because Ooh, yeah. how well... Are you talking about the little girl? The, well, Her, all of it. The oh, little just girl, all of yeah, the, the little girl, yeah, I, the children in the in the villages, the yeah. you know, the old people, and the compies that are just scavenging and come in, and, and the sense of one, the way that Crichton describes it is horrific because it's children, and so you're thinking, oh my gosh, that make that ramps it up even more, right? And he just really sets the tone for this is really interesting. It's intellectually in, intellectually engaging, but it's going to scare the crap out of you. And it's yeah. going to make you feel uncomfortable, you know? And I really, really liked that. One of the things that, that impressed me early on in the book and helped me set this tone of, for, for me at least, of uh, when science goes wrong, right? Yeah. Is the way that they portrayed the discovery of the, of the dinosaur, the first set of dinosaur bones 
and they're sending it back and they were saying, oh, well, yeah, this is obviously a, this kind of a lizard because of blah, blah, blah. Even though there's no lizard that has three toes, it's supposed to have five, but it looks mm-hmm. like it's going to be the right thing. And we go through all of these assumptions that the scientists of our day make. Um, if it looks like this, you know, we use Occam's razor to do all these kinds of things. And so we say, well, if it looks like that, then it probably is. So we go with that and we, we do all of these things. It's not until it gets to someone who has a different set of lenses to look at it that he says, uh, no, (laughs) this is what I've been looking at in fossilized remains for quite some time. This analysis is wrong. This analysis is right. But because there is a gap in assumptions, because there is a, a flawed expectation of following protocol and asking the right kinds of questions, being thorough in the way mm-hmm. that you ask the questions. Had they been thorough, could they have headed all of this off faster? Yeah, I oh, mean, yeah. absolutely. And I think, I think you bring up a really good point about assumptions because it sets the stage of there are several assumptions made just in, in the first part of the book about is this a dinosaur or is it, what is this as a lizard? It's not a lizard. And they just generally assume. But then when you get actually into the park and the, the breakdown of the system and when they start to realize that the dinosaurs are reproducing, the reason they never caught that before is because they built a system on us on assumption. Yeah. Right. They said there could only be 430 yeah, or 232, look for 232 right. dinosaurs. Okay. We and assume, they just assume that's how many there are going to be. And so they never second guess their assumptions. And to your point, somebody with a different set of lenses comes in yeah. Malcolm and says, well, what about this? And all of a sudden, okay, <laughs> check your assumptions. So it's, just a commentary on the the power and and potentially damaging power of of assumption. So, um, I, let me let me ask this question. We kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier. Un- unless we want to talk about more dis- discrepancies between the book and the movie and how they make us happy with I, one or the other. I think we're probably good with that. Okay. I mean, I think there are more to talk about. There, but, oh, yeah, there there's more. plenty. I mean, but certainly, I, I think we can, you know, come and, in and, and certainly, if some of our listeners want to, you know, kick in and in the comment section say their own personal sure. uh, departures that they liked really, you know, that's great mm-hmm. too. Um, the, the fact that Malcolm survives is one of mine um, oh, yeah. because I really liked Malcolm. I w- would like to think that, you know, I approach things more from a Malcolm perspective of asking questions and challenging beliefs and assumptions, but maybe I don't. I think I would say I liked Malcolm, but I really liked Jeff Goldblum's take on Ian Malcolm. Jeff Goldblum did a good job of being Steve Jobs, Michael Crichton, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he did a whole bunch of the, I think, I think he played that role to absolute perfection after reading it in the book. And so yeah. my, my uh, impression of him in the book kind of fed from that and, mm-hmm. and it left me disappointed that he wasn't going to continue on. Yeah. But you know, Sure. Sometimes so your favorite characters die. We've learned that over the years. Um, yeah. Well, every time I have a favorite character, they are going to die. Yeah. Uh, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I've come to grips with it. Have you? No. <laughs> so the the question that I want to ask, kind of to, to maybe wrap things up or right before we wrap things up, how well does this book age? It's been 30 years. Mm-hmm. And some of the things, some of the, some of the predictive nature of what was going to happen or what was on the, what was on the near frontier of genetic research and all of these different kinds of things may or may not have come to pass. We've had cloning successful cloning that has occurred in the time since the book was originally written. Uh, We've learned an awful lot about what we can and cannot do successfully about cloning. We've also learned an awful lot about what we're comfortable and not comfortable doing with genetic research. Stem cell research has changed 
just about everything on the conversation about human cloning and about mm -hmm. how we would approach some of those genetic engineering pieces. And uh, along with the advent of trying to identify genetic markers for different kinds of diseases, there's been a lot that has happened that has not necessarily happened exactly the way that Michael Crichton was putting it out there. Um, so to that extent, you know, maybe it doesn't age as well as he would have hoped. But does the book, in your opinion, has it aged well? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the themes are are ever present. So one of the main themes is man versus nature, mm -hmm. right? One of the other main themes is the dangers of technology. Um, and we yeah. talked about assumption and greed and things like that. But I think one of the things that stood out to me quite a bit were were the the uh, this theme of control. Yeah, the yeah. idea of control, and that no matter specifically controlling nature. Controlling nature yeah. or just control in general. So mm, okay. any system you Im you put in place that you feel like you are exhibiting control and inserting control, that there are levels of control, but there really is no such thing as absolute control, I think is what he's getting at, right? Mm -hmm. right. And I think it's especially when you're talking about yeah. nature. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm a, I'm a systems guy. I really like the idea of processes and systems and figuring out how all the cogs work and the wheel and all that kind of stuff. And just that there are so many variables yeah. in whatever system you th can think of that you can never completely control something. And that really, I think the ultimate point of that is that you have to be okay mm -hmm. with the idea of letting go of control. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how well the, uh, the the practice or the uh, field of chaos theory has held up in the last mm -hmm. thirty years. I I know it was was fairly revolutionary when Michael Crichton wrote wrote this book, and mm -hmm. so that's that's why he threw it in there because it was so new and unique and had so many possibilities with and storytelling. So useful, yeah, and and it was so useful to describe the undescribable, you know. And uh, I don't know how much it's still used now or how much it came and went, but the idea of uh, the idea of being able to uh, control for the uncontrollable in a in a in a formula is still an interesting thing, and and people will always I think will always try uh, try doing that, and so I think that part holds up. Some of the computer stuff doesn't hold up as well. I mean, computers have advanced so astronomically in the last thirty years, but uh, but I think a lot of the of the theoretical stuff of the of the uh, human element. Uh, human mm -hmm. interaction element clearly holds up. I even think some of the science stuff holds up. I mean, he he left it nebulous enough that that you can just kind of interpolate from what he what he presented that eh, that's still conceivable to sure. draw DNA from a mosquito that's encased in amber. Mm -hmm. You know, and, there are there are enough pieces of it that um, that certainly are uh, still usable science uh, yeah. that that it. That I, you know, I, I have a tendency to agree with both of you. The one complaint that I had with it, and maybe this is just me, but uh, my my first interactions with chaos theory came in 1989, uh, 1988, somewhere around there, yeah. 87, 88, 89, somewhere in that in that time frame, uh, where the Mandelbrot equations were starting to be publicized, and people were very fascinated about them because of the tendency that they had to repeat some of their spatial patterns, but that 
they repeated them with slight variations so that as yeah. you dug deeper into the equation, you ran it out past more variables, you would see different kinds of new pieces that would evolve that would be similar but different. And we started talking about how that applies to nature and we see that in leaves, you know, leaves are similar but different and blah, 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 blah. All these kinds of things with, with chaos theory. And it felt very much to me like Malcolm was being used as Chaos Theory 101, a primer for those of you who aren't who aren't smart enough to right. have already studied Chaos Theory before we wrote this book. Right. right. And that's the one piece for me that and, and again, maybe it's just me, but it's the one piece where I felt like I was being condescended to. Mm, I uh, can see that. And, and again, maybe it, maybe it's just because of. Because of me personally and, and the background and the experiences that I'd had. But that was the one thing about this that because chaos theory has been a little bit more ubiquitous over the last 30 years, because it has been used, um, not necessarily not necessarily thrown aside, um, but certainly when you're talking about theoretical constructs, there are some other theories that are starting to pop up and you've got more people talking about the five different versions of string theory that can be running around to explain stuff. Yeah. Okay, right, you know, and maybe if he was rewriting it now, he'd be using string theory to explain mm -hmm. some of this stuff. Uh, but I have to say, if that's the only thing that I felt kind of beaten over the head with, I think that's a pretty decent deal for something that was so science driven mm -hmm. 30 years ago yeah. that it still holds up. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think I think it probably is somewhat unique to you or somebody who's fam more familiar with that. Because I actually really like the way that he uses Gennaro's character um, as kind of the conduit for the reader. Because Gennaro keeps being like, "What are you talking about? Yeah. What are you talking about?" And and uh, Malcolm well, Bob, all, yeah, all you scientists, <laughs> all you scientists are blowing my mind. And it, and it almost does. It does. I mean, I can see where if you're familiar with it, you could feel like, "Okay, dude, we get it." But it almost does take the layman reader and elevate their understanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and actually make them feel a little bit more like well hey i can understand some of this science crap cool i'm not, I, i'm here for the dinosaurs but i feel like i learned something you know what i mean so. heaven forbid that our that our reading should teach us something get out of here you're saying that a michael crichton book is like an abc afternoon special is that there you go there you go uh in so many different ways in so many ways any any big quotes go ahead you, you know what the modern version of uh, of chaos theory is i think schrodinger's cat that's, okay. the, that's the one in the last five minutes, which I think is, is probably related to string theory. But I think I feel like that's the one that all the scientists try to use these days is Schrodinger's cat. I'm like, whatever. That's just a theoretical nothing. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm not a scientist. What do I know? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a science guy. No, oh, I, love good, I love it. I love it. Alone so, in a crowd again. I'm Thanks, happy gentlemen. to be I'm happy to be condescended to when it comes yes, to exactly. the sciences. I have uh, an arts degree. <laughs> we'll talk later um i majored in communications who else got a worthless degree <laughs> well gentlemen let me ask this question any last thoughts before we before we wrap this up you know what i would love or what i i wish that i love the movie but i almost wish that it was made 20 years later as a five-part series like one of those mm. one of those uh HBO five part, maybe not HBO because I, I, I was fine with it being PG 13, but it's this book would have done really well as a multi-part series where you actually get to see all of the things that are menacing that they get left on the cutting room floor because for time, you know? Yeah. I would love an Alex Garland version of this. Oh yeah. Um, who did annihilation yeah. and, yeah. and you know, I would love, 
to see that, like you said, as a as a series, and I would love to see the the visual version that leans further into the intellectual, scientific, uh, AI side of it, right? Yeah, and and engineering side of it. Um, as much as the dinosaurs are completely incredible, like I I want that even more because the the more there's levels to it, right? The more you understand the raw power that they're playing with and that ultimately what they decided to do with that raw power was to bring monsters back from the dead. Like yeah. this is a Frankenstein story, right? Yes. Yeah. And, yes. and I would love to see, I would love to see them take their time with it to get into some of these deeper character motivations. Yeah. Why is it that Henry Wu lets himself be seduced by Hammond? Because Wu starts out as, he really like he the way that I would describe Henry Wu is is the way you describe almost every English major where it's like, what are you gonna do with English? You're gonna be a teacher, you know. And Wu's yeah. kind of like, well, what am I gonna do with with all these uh, this genetics degree or whatever? Well, I'm gonna do more research, you know. Like he's just going along through the motions, but to really dig in a little bit more to that intellectual side on what makes the human characters tick, yeah, and why those different lenses from which they view this, this story and the, how it's unfolding, why that matters. I'll so, even go, sorry. I'll even go one farther uh, than that. Now, uh, as much as I love Chris Pratt riding a motorcycle with Velociraptors, I think this is what they should have done as the reboot to Jurassic I, park instead of I Jurassic do, world. I do feel like the psychological horror that is Jurassic park, the novel is much more compelling yes. than yeah. the blockbuster action movie. Yeah. Although the blockbuster action movie is my favorite movie ever and I love dinosaurs. <laughs> I you know, give me all of it but give it to me in the uh the psychological horror package. Yeah. So wait a minute, I I I have to go back to one thing that you just mentioned with uh Wu being seduced away from the from the the pureness of his life. Are you saying that Hammond is Darth Vader or Palpatine or the devil? Which one? I mean, aren't they synonymous? <laughs> okay, just checking. Just checking. I uh, have to bring this back to Star Wars some way or shape or Somehow. form. Yeah. Somehow. So uh, I want to – there was one that I wanted to – there were three really good quotes that were all Malcolm's. And I'm not going to read all three of them. Uh, but they, they – for me, they were a really beautiful statement – uh, about really some assumptions that we make about our own lives. Um, and this is the one that I want to leave you guys with. Linearity is an artificial way of viewing the world. Real life isn't a series of interconnected events occurring one after another like beads strung on a necklace. Life is actually a series of encounters in which one event may change those that follow in a wholly unpredictable, even devastating way. As I was reading this book, uh, and, and as I was, you know, pulling some of these pieces in and saying to myself, okay, okay, I see where he's going. I had to ask myself, okay, not, not from a standpoint of what lesson can I learn and all of those kinds of things, but more from a standpoint of how do I, how do I want to take, is there a level three piece for this for me? And for me, the, the, the level three piece was, and, and I'm not saying that anybody else should, but I know for me, this was it that perhaps I should be a little bit more gentle with myself thinking that everything I do can screw up everybody else so much, 
but oh. also to be very aware and very conscious of the responsibility that I take for my own actions. Mm-hmm. Because I like that. in this book, we have Hammond who takes no responsibility for his actions. And it does, in fact, screw up everything. Yeah. And we have Malcolm who keeps trying to remind everybody to take responsibility for their actions. And even though he's trying to do that as best he possibly can, he still winds up, you know, he winds up losing the battle and on the temporary level, but gives us all and gave everybody there something to think about as to how dare you presume to be more than human mm-hmm. <laughs> when you can, you can't even control all of the events in your own life. And yet you think you can do this. Hmm. So food for thought, uh, you know, it's my, my own, my own Zen moment in the midst of all of that stuff that was going on. Hopefully that was useful. If it wasn't useful, that's okay. We'll come up with something next time. Uh, and Todd didn't cry once. Dang it. I, you I, know what? I did not cry at all in this book. <laughs> I did not cry we at all. We found it. We found I, it. We found that's the key. A wrap. Give Legendary me a book with dinosaurs and I will never cry. Oh, uh, looks like <laughs> a, uh, it was a good show to go out on. I said. It was good. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, we'll have to shut her down. Uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Would you please shut down the system? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, we've run out of power, I'm sure. (laughs) Have a great night. 